listeners. Welcome back to Maya, my yoga audio. I'm your host, Megan Morgan, and welcome to the first episode of 2022. As you'll notice from the intro music, this is a little bit of a new sound for the new year. So let's see how that goes with tuning up our ears to something a little bit different. And today I wanted to take a focus on something that I wrote recently. And heads up, if you'd prefer to read this rather than listen to it as an audio episode, head over to the blog on myyogaaudio.com slash blog where you can see the photos, which I'll describe in this recording to go along with um, the reading. So some of you have indicated from feedback on the blog that you'd love to hear this as a podcast so that you could listen to it while walking or doing your daily activities. So here it is, and it's called Toast with Melted Butter, Please, Reflections on Food, Love, and Longing. The first photograph, the header for this story is what is to me a perfectly toasted piece of bread with a pat of butter on it, and it's just starting to melt. And as you let your eyes gaze through the photograph, you'll see there's parts that are barely toasted at all, and some that are nice and toasty, yellow, warmish brown, and some that are also black. And the caption underneath the photo is, hmm, a recent treat. So let's begin. I have a clear memory of saying that to my father when I was growing up, toast with melted butter, please, when I was still little enough for him to ask me what I wanted for breakfast. He would chuckle when I did and respond with, pumpkin, don't you mean toast with butter? Winking knowingly at me, to which I would reply, no, daddy. It has to be toast with melted butter. Toast with butter just isn't the same thing. Up next here is a photo of me with my two dads. On the left, my biological black father, Ronald Painter. And on the right, my adoptive white father and the one I grew up with who made me toast with melted butter. His name was Ronald Dodds. I'm in the middle of both of them sitting on the couch in the living room in the late 1970s. And it really isn't to me, toast, the same thing with butter or with melted butter. Have you ever had toast that was cold with butter that didn't melt into it? The two breakfasts are a far cry from each other. And I've known that clearly since I was a toddler. My preference is clear. But the other thing I've also come to realize lately is that the emotional connection that I have to food, and I suspect most of us do, is one that is intertwined with memories of the people and places associated with those foods you love or despise. That particular toast memory was from a winter morning in southern Ontario, Canada. The sun was streaming through the kitchen, and it was early enough that the rest of the household was still asleep, or at least not yet downstairs in the kitchen. It was the early 1980s, and breakfast wasn't ever fancy when I was growing up, unless it was a special occasion. Toast, cereal, a banana, or some other fruit was about the extent of it, but it's the memory of someone making it for me, and making it with genuine care and love that I most recall. And biting into that perfect piece of warm toast, almost dripping with the melted butter, is a memory that makes me sigh with sweet surrender. To this day. 
I recalled this memory most recently, I think because of two things. Number one, it's been nearly 10 years since I was diagnosed with celiac disease. Celiac is a serious allergy to gluten and one that will damage your intestines if, if you ingest it in any small amount. Gluten-free breads until recently weren't worth my time and attention because they fell apart and tasted like cardboard, so it had felt like forever since I'd actually enjoyed a decent piece of toast. And number two, I listened to the 100% guilt-free self-care podcast recently with host Tammy Hackbarth. And she is one of two people that were on this episode that I actually know in real life too. So Tammy and Julia Washington, and they got talking about what Julia's morning routine was. And Julia revealed that every morning, pretty much without fail, she and her son have coffee, toast, and turkey bacon together. Now here on the blog, there's a photo of a hand spreading jam on two pieces of toast and beside it is a cup of coffee and notably the hand is brown. The caption for the photograph is called Morning Glory and each morning Julia, the host of the show, Pop Culture Makes Me Jealous, enjoys toast with preserves, coffee and turkey bacon with her teenage son. So that very same day that I listened to that episode between Tammy and Julia, my husband Richard came home with what turned out to be a most special treat, a new loaf of gluten-free bread by Canyon Bakehouse. No, they're not paying me for this, but they can if they want to. Uh, and he toasted a piece of bread for me, patted a square of cold butter on it. And as I watched it melt and then brought it to my lips and teeth and tongue and tasted and smelled and chewed, I swear to God, I almost passed out with joy. It tasted so good. No, actually wonderful. Just like I remembered toast tasting earlier in my life. And my heart and my mind were swiftly spirited back to that cold winter's morning when my dad asked me what I wanted to eat. And the simple love that was shared on that breakfast table was upon me here again in my own kitchen, thanks to my partner who had done such a simple and yet profound thing. The next morning, I made a piece of toast again, and I took the photo, that's the headliner image for this blog post. I've actually been thinking about our food connections for some time, and this seemed like the purpose, perfect place to get started. What follows here is uh, 12, three, six, nine, 12 pieces of toast um, on a red background, and in the center of each piece of toast, it's been cut out with a, like a heart stamp like you'd make cookies with. And it's titled, The Caption, A Brief History of Toast. And most historians think that toast originated as a way to preserve or revive stale bread, rather than our modern interpretation of it, which is smothered in avocado, peanut butter, jam, or my favorite, butter. And bread as we know it was popularized in Egypt. I provide a link there for you to check that out. And the closed oven was also invented in Egypt for the baking of leavened breads by 3000 BC. Europe, as usual, gets most of the credit for this because the word toast actually comes from the Latin toastum, which means to burn or to scorch. And ancient breads in Egypt and elsewhere were toasted by layering them in front of the fire on a hot stone because they sure didn't have toasters or toaster ovens back then. And my lifelong love affair with bread didn't end with morning toast, however. Every school day, from the first grade through the eighth grade, I had the same thing for lunch, a peanut butter and jam sandwich. 
I'm not kidding. Whether it was made by a family member or myself, that was what I ate and truly loved for the entirety of my childhood. The security and familiarity, and I provide a link there, of what to expect each day is what I suspect attracted me most. In addition to the PBJ in my lunchbox, the other constant with it was a thermos of chocolate milk and an apple. Seriously, the same lunch, every school day, for eight years. Did kids tease me? Oh, sure they did. Did other adults who came into the house try to encourage me to try something else? Of course. One famous story. Oh gosh, a friend of my parents when they were on vacation made me ketchup sandwiches for lunch because she said, you love ketchup so much with your dinner. I thought you must love a ketchup sandwich. No, no, didn't fly. So did I eat said something else's? Nope. That one constant in my life was something that I came to rely on. Breakfast could vary, much as I loved toast with melted butter, and dinner was variable too. But for lunch, PBJ or bust. So here, listeners, what comfort foods do you remember from your childhood or even your teen years? Do you still eat or think of them now? If it feels right, maybe pause the recording and jot down a few thoughts on on what that means to you, what you remember and your associations. So followed by this question is a photo of a peanut butter and jelly sandwich that is absolutely being squeezed out of its center and running down the side of the bread. It's a a pretty uh, gourmet, gooey looking sandwich and it's titled the caption, my classic PBJ. My daily sandwiches as a kid certainly did not look like this photo, that's for sure. But the thought, memory and experience of how familiar and good it looked and tasted to my growing and overwhelmed childhood brain tells the whole story. There it was, all my messy and gooey insides and emotions, a metaphor in peanut butter and jam, standing in for my fragile sense of self, somehow being held comfortingly together between two slices of bread. Our family connections to food. The father, who I grew up calling dad, was Ronald Dodds, and he was born and raised in southern Ontario, Canada. Brantford, actually, to be exact. He was a kid when the depression of the 1930s hit and his mother died young. He told me that even as a child, in order to help survive and provide for the household, he had learned to fish and to hunt, and he was in charge of city block-sized, a city block-sized vegetable garden. Their family wasn't wealthy, and the depression made things quite a bit worse. He captured rabbits and even pheasants to eat, when needed for meat, along with chickens, and I think he may have even said squirrels. And he took care of the garden plot all by himself, selling extra vegetables at the local market to bring home cash income. And following this is a photo, it's undated from the 1940s, and it's taken from the cockpit of a plane, and you're looking out and the propeller actually of of one of the plane's engines is is frozen and a little bit blurry in motion. And at age 14, Ronald joined the Canadian military and became an airplane mechanic serving throughout World War II. And so when he was only 14, and just prior to the start of the war, he fibbed about his age in order to get into the military because you were supposed to be 16. And he wanted to leave his home. It was a very difficult 
place, a rough existence. And with no mother around anymore, and frankly, an abusive father, he did his best to steer clear of him, but he wanted to see the world and find something of himself in service to his country too. He returned several years later, wearing the same pair of pants he had left in. And there's a photograph I've seen, which I don't have, but I so wish I did, where his pant hems are in the middle of his shins because he had grown so much while we're working overseas, um, but his pants still still fit. So he, he wore them home. People just didn't throw things out because they grew out of them back then. And so he came back home tall and skinny and, and happy. And supposedly one of the very first things he said was, I'm going to have dessert every day for the rest of my life. And the next photo that's included here is one of him in sometime in the 1980s. And he's on a fishing trip. He's wearing a blue baseball cap, a beige jacket, and blue denim jeans or pants. And he's holding up about 10 or 12 fish. And there's a, a very small motorboat behind him in the background. And he's surrounded by forest and a lake. And so the caption says, Ronald Dodd, circa 1980s. This photo was taken by one of my uncles on one of a few annual fishing trips he went on with them in the northern and western provinces of Ontario and Manitoba in Canada. And so indeed, he did have dessert every day for the rest of his life. To my knowledge and memory, he had dessert at lunch and at dinner every day. He remained fit and slim despite this, only gaining some additional weight much later in life. But for the most part, he was very mentally and physically active, even after retirement, and didn't have any major health issues until his final years. He lived to age 91, passing in 2014 from complications of pneumonia. And I realized I learned a lot about food and my relationship to it from a very young age. We all do. But I didn't really consciously realize that until much more recently. And curiously, it was this man, Ronald Dodds, who was not even technically biologically related to me, but he raised me as his own. And it was he who taught me so much about it. And there's another photo here. It's black and white. It's um, from 1959. And it's a photo of my uncle Guy Van Brabant, who's probably about three or four years old. My biological mother, Maria Painter, who's... Um, two years older than he is. Um, my aunt Carolyn Skaronsky, uh, who was in the middle, they were all a year apart, born in 52, 53, and 54. And then next to my aunt Carolyn is my biological grandmother, who I grew up calling mom. Her name was Madeline Dodds. Next to her is my biological great-grandmother, Flavia Seegers. And next to her, my biological great-grandfather, Charles Seegers. And they're sitting around a table at what appears to be Christmas or Thanksgiving dinner. There's a big turkey and bottles of pop. It could be beer. They were Belgian after all. <laughs> um, but it's hard to tell. But they're happy. Everybody's smiling and, and looking pretty full. So my grandmother, Madeline, who I grew up calling mom, after my biological mother, Maria, her eldest daughter died in 1974. So Madeline is nearly 100 years old as of this writing. She's still living in Canada. And she married Ron later in the 1960s. I believe it was in 1965. 
after divorcing from her first husband, Joe, who was my biological grandfather, and I only met him once. It was a second marriage for Ron, too. Uh, but I'm not dwelling on that. Growing up, there were two major things I recall about Mom Madeline's cooking. And one is a food that I really loved and one that I really despised. So food to love, Belgian crepes. So born in Belgium, she had a recipe and a knack for making this treat that I've never encountered anywhere else. It was the food we had on every special occasion, the one that everyone asked for, the one that could be tailored to whatever your heart's desire was rolled up on the inside, fruit, cheese, meat, yogurt, blanketed in the thin, fried, and slightly sweet dough that wrapped around the outside, Thinking about it now, they actually didn't look all that particularly attractive on their own. But the taste? For me, personally, it was always butter, ha, brown sugar, and syrup for the win. And in fact, just rolled up cold from the fridge the next morning was also a delectable and fast leftover breakfast. And so we're followed by another photograph here, and there's a plate of uh, crepes on a plate, and there's a woman standing behind them and she's drizzling some, some cheesy, sweet-looking sauce over top of them. It looks absolutely de delicious. And the caption says, Panakuken. And this is the Flemish name for crepes. It translates literally as pancakes, but they're different from pancakes in that they're very thin and stretchy and able to be rolled and or stuffed. Unlike typical North American pancakes, which are enjoyed in thick, fluffy stacks. And I provide a link to a recipe from The Hungry Belgian in the blog article, if you might like to try them out. So needless to say, almost, I haven't had a crepe since I was a teenager. The whole gluten thing. It's hard without that gluten in there to make them stretchy. Um, but when I think about that positive eating experience and the memory, it's also infused with the occasion. Being surrounded by family or friends with something to celebrate something prepared with love, the maker knowing full well that everyone is anxiously awaiting around the table for the goodies to be set down to enjoy. There's something to that too, isn't there? So listener, what do you remember about big meals or celebrations around a table when you were younger? And, you know, we can treat this as, as a webinar workshop as well. And feel free to pause the recording and jot down some thoughts about what you remember about big meals and celebrations around a table when you were younger. And so following this question is another photo from the circa mid-late 70s. And um, it's kind of a funny one. I'm in the foreground of the picture sitting on this antique spinning stool. I can still remember sitting at the table. So the purpose of the stool was to spin higher or lower, depending on the height um, of the individual. But it was, I think, made for kids, right, to adjust to their growing bodies. So I sat on this for most of my, my childhood as I grew. But from left to right, it's a color photo, is my great-grandmother, Flavia Seegers. Next to her, my great-grandfather, Charles Seegers, and then me. And then my grandfather-slash-adoptive father, Ronald Dodds. And then next to him, my uncle, Guy Van Brabant. And you can see from the clothes they're wearing and the colors in the photos is definitely in the 70s. There's a solid wood table that we're sitting around. And again, there's a turkey at the forefront and everyone's got a glass of what looks like red wine with ice in it. 
Um, that may or may not have been the case. It could have been grape juice, but those are our fancy wine glasses. I remember that from growing up. So I suspect it was chilled wine. And so moving on, I move into the food that <laughs> generates the most feelings of hate and disgust for me, which is Brussels sprouts. Uh, I have really tried since childhood, but less than a handful of times I've had them in a restaurant and once at a home where the recipe was just right and they were crispy and fused with hot peppers and maybe some garlic and lemon or other citrus sauce that took away the bitterness. But for the most part, Brussels sprouts always taste to me like they've been boiled to oblivion and I cannot get up from the table until I finish what's on my plate. Like that's literally what comes up for me. So you yourself probably either love them or hate them. But how much of our reaction to this kind of a food and food memory is based on our emotional and physical experience of eating them? Hint, spoiler alert, probably a lot. Absent of legitimate allergies and sensitivities, I'm guessing a lot of us have these reactions to certain foods. So in the meantime, I keep trying. I love cabbage, broccoli, other kinds of bitter vegetables, but I'm taking note that there's a lot more influencing my palate than I might think. So what food do you think is absolutely awful and why? And do you have childhood memories associated with it? Again, take a moment if you want to pause the recording to think about that or jot some thoughts down. And then we'll move on to something that's probably a little nicer for everyone, which is a photo of a uh, most likely a, a female hand. It looks like a feminine hand hoping, holding up um, an ice cream cone. And the caption says, we all scream for ice cream. And a treasured childhood memory of mine is going downtown on a hot summer night to Ice Cream Galore. And there's a link there, which was a locally owned business that had, in our family's humble opinion, the world's best ice cream. My favorite flavor was Tiger's Eye, a mix of black licorice and orange sherbet. And the feelings of joy and contentment experienced with a once-in-a-while treat can follow us into adulthood in a pleasant way. But they can also fuel emotional eating when we need more than just an ice cream as a solution to what we're feeling. So let's talk about fries now for a minute. Yes, fries. A few years ago, a work colleague asked me what my favorite savory treat was, and I didn't hesitate to say fries. It's a triple whammy. So my previously mentioned Belgian grandmother, Madeline, only very rarely made thick cut delicious Belgian fries. Now fries are often called French fries, but I will stop you right there and get you to click on the link that I provide in the article, which explains how they actually originated in Belgium. So at home, I love fries. Again, prepared with love by the maker who receives copious thanks and adulation from the table, as well as witnessing the 1980s rise of fast food restaurants where they were so plentiful. Additionally, in the town I grew up in, there were chip trucks or bridge fries located under the bridge um, that connected um, Southern Ontario to the state of Michigan. So just on the other side of the St. Lawrence River, where it met Lake Huron. And this was a family spot, a teen spot, a date spot. And since I was a kid of the 80s and a teen of the 90s, let's just say I ate a whole lot of damn fries in my life. And they remain to this day one of my favorite foods. And so the emotional, familial, and psychological connections run deep. So, listener, 
you've stuck with me this far. Can you guess what I'm going to posit now? And there's a few things, but they're all related, at least in my mind. So bear with me. Number one is that we all have emotional and psychological connections to the food we eat. And if I could, when I have rough days, I would eat ice cream, fries, and crepes because it feels good. I associate these foods with feeling good, feeling loved, and positive experiences. Like the toast. That's not so bad for you in moderation. And number two, I've been thinking a lot about the rise of the household where two or less parents or adults um, became the norm. And so rising costs of living and shifting gender roles, demographics, also means more of us choose or must work additionally and full-time outside the home, which leads to a lessened ability to grow or prepare food at home, and thus to a fast food explosion, often leading to negative health effects. And there's a link there in the blog. Increasingly, we are living in urban areas. The wealth gap is huge. Poverty is increasing. And food deserts are a real and devastating thing. If you don't know what food deserts are, click on the link in the blog. I'll give you kind of a brief history there. And this part isn't included in the blog, but I want to mention it here. The household I grew up in included my parents and my great-grandparents. And we had food gardens. My great-grandfather used to make homemade banana bread. Um, My grandmother did not work and so did not work outside the home, I should say. So she made dinner every night. And food, so number three, food and the preparation of it being a necessary but mostly pleasurable family-oriented ritual before the 21st century begins to shift in the 1970s, 1980s to a get-it-done-by-any-means-necessary approach. And fast food kind of grew along with our need for it, right? So number four, we start to lose our connection to our food and we look for the love we miss being shown to us in the preparation of it from increasingly outside sources. Outside sources could be fast food and other treats, which seem relatively benign, but also alcohol, drugs, entertainment, digital or otherwise, gambling. I'm sticking to food here, but you get the idea. And there's a photo here. And it's one of myself in the center, my my two daughters on either side of me. And the caption says it was taken in December of 2021, showing my daughter Jesha, myself, and then my daughter Sandel. And we were spending some time exploring the Sacramento Crocker Museum of Art. And so when my daughters came home for Christmas this past December, an interesting thing happened. My husband Richard suggested that we order lots of takeout for the first few days for a few reasons. Number one, between all of us, there are a lot of severe food allergies and preferences, but we actually have similar tastes and takeout menus that fit all those. And number two, it's the holidays. We've all been working hard. Let's support local businesses, take a break from cooking, and enjoy some great food. Sounds reasonable and good, right? And that's what we thought. And so we went out gleefully for an outdoor Christmas Eve brunch. Then we ordered sushi for Christmas Eve dinner and Indian food for Christmas day dinner. And it was all delicious and convenient, but I won't lie. I love a home-cooked turkey, mashed potatoes, and a range of vegetables for a traditional meal. But we had so many leftovers from our days of takeout that we ate those for Boxing Day, the 26th. And still we had more leftover. And I was contemplating ordering more food to somehow complement the range of all the other stuff we had left when my eldest daughter said, when are we going to cook? 
I haven't had a home-cooked meal from you since March of 2020. I actually really like your cooking. And that stopped me dead in my tracks. I realized that I too like cooking. It's an expression of love for me. But when the kids were younger and we had horrendous commutes and so little time, I despised cooking. It was just one more thing I had to do. And the kids are always hungry and so are adults, frankly. And it just became whatever the fastest thing was that I could get on the table. And, you know, I wasn't in it alone. My husband, Richard, is actually a great cook. He's particularly good with with meats. But as I've gotten older, I realized that while I do truly enjoy preparing food, but only if there is time and space to do it. If you live in a small or a tight space or you're always in a rush because of commutes or you have to rely on public transportation, even harder to take the time to grow, shop, and prep. I finally decided that on weekends or days off, I would batch prep and cook while listening to podcasts, music, or talking on the phone. It feels therapeutic and good to be unhurriedly chopping vegetables, adding spices, marinating meats and sauces, and making enough to enjoy some now and then freezing some for later. By the way, have you ever read or watched Like Water for Chocolate? Uh, They made a movie out of that back in the, I guess it was in the 90s or early 2000s, but the book came out in the 90s. There's a quote from uh, the book that I wanted to use here. Tita's cooking is a form of magic. Her feelings and emotions can influence the meal. When Tita's tears fall into a cake, the party guests all feel intense sadness and longing after eating it. Her happiness while preparing another meal causes intense euphoria for everyone who tastes it. And I'm a firm believer in that. Like when you're in a good mood and you're making a meal and you know it's something you love and the people at the table are going to appreciate it, the whole thing tastes so much bitter than when, so much better than if you're mad and bitter and you throw something together. Have you ever noticed how if you make something like that, it doesn't taste as good? And so while dining out or ordering in has absolutely always been a rare treat in the homes that I grew up in and in what I cultivated at home as a wife and a mother, did we ever just pick up fast food or order pizza because that's what we needed to do to get us by in the moment? Absolutely. And because it was such a rarity, we usually enjoyed it pretty damn immensely too. So following here is a photograph of my girls and I, and it's about 2001, 2002. They're so little, their their heads don't even come up to the top of the couch. And we're sitting on the couch under a blanket, enjoying a bowl of ice cream. And one of my daughters has more ice cream on her face and her sweater than she's gotten into her mouth. And it's priceless. So what I want to come around to here, friends, as we wind down and close out this podcast is that. The observations we can make about ourselves and our relationship to food and how it impacts our daily life now. And while there have always been so-called foodies, and I provide a link there, the pandemic that is COVID-19 ushered in a whole other kind of cooking, making, and baking craze because we literally could not leave home for days, weeks, sometimes months at a time. It's still going on. It's January 2022 in China's lockdown, large cities in China. So we suddenly had time and inclination to make meals. And while much has been made about the weight that the collective population has gained during this time, there's also something else we have regained. Our appreciation of food made with love and care and the relationships that matter to us. 
And of particular note, I want to address those who have families. And so I've provided a link to the definition, but it's essentially friends who've become family. And they've built and are building those relationships because of severed, lost, or toxic blood relative relationships. And thinking about whether you have recipes or traditions that can find new life in this group you've created. What about new things you discover that can become your specialty offering? It might just be best to separate yourself totally from something that has too much negative association to your past, no matter how much you want to reframe it. But what's important is that everyone has something personal to offer when you do gather, to feel part of the gathering, no matter how small or complicated it may be. And eating with others usually makes us feel good. And there's a link there talking about why, whether we are related to the people we're dining with or not. And so following here is a photograph of five adults and one baby, and we're sitting around a picnic table in a yard surrounded by green grasses and everybody's smiling and waving either at each other or the camera. And it's titled Outdoor Dining 2014. And so dining outdoors increased in popularity during the pandemic, in large part because of social distancing requirements to stay healthy, but it's always been a lovely thing to do. And in this photo, we were nestled in between my friend Margie's vegetable garden and the backyard of her wooden deck, and it was absolutely perfect. And so left to right, you'll see me, my husband Richard, Margie's son, Jose Barrientos, and Sienna, Bridget, and Shane Titus. And I'm not sure if it was Margarita or Bruce McDonald uh, that took this photo, um, but it was their home and it was definitely one of them. And so understand that I'm not trying to make this about weight or how you look, but how you feel. Our emotional attachments to or rejections of the food we eat, the company we keep, and what makes us thrive are intimately connected. I encourage you to explore what that means for you. What do you need more of or less of in your life? If you live alone and you want to be able to be with more people, but it's not always possible in person because your connections, your strong connections live far away, or maybe you're in a limited person household, is it possible to arrange Zoom or FaceTime calls while eating? with people you care about. And don't laugh. We actually do that sometimes with our daughters now that they both live away from home. It's actually a lot of fun. If that feels too weird or if your connections don't feel up to doing that, maybe just try even scheduling calls to them close to the mealtimes that you're having so that the feeling of connection, of connection lasts into your eating time. And while technology is not a complete replacement for actual people, it can help to try different things out. And so the final photo here is of my mother, Maria, and I in 1974. She's wearing a white blouse that's open and I'm wrapped in a white blanket on her lap. And the caption says, whether we consciously recollect them or not, our earliest memories live in our bodies and are associated with safety, nourishment, and care. Are you able to have conversations with caregivers about you as a baby? If not, what do photographs, if any, reveal? I'll spare you and my daughters the photos that could accompany the one I just mentioned above of me feeding my girls in pretty much the exact same position, the same facial expression at the same age. It's uncanny how similar these photos are. 
So whether you were nursed at a breast or had a bottle or whether you yourself breastfed any children or whether they had a bottle, the same thing happens. We associate nourishment with love and closeness to someone other than ourselves. And while I believe it's also healthy and perfectly natural to eat alone comfortably, especially as we get older, we owe it to ourselves to be cognizant enough to recognize when we do need or seek out other people or when others need us. It's wired into our brains, our hearts, and our bodies to connect. And the patterns we can observe about ourselves and how we do things now impacts our families and everyone who's important to us in this life. I'm no food expert, and I'm not claiming to be an authority on what's best for everyone. But what I do think is this, when we know more about who we are and what we want and why, along with who we love, it makes life and everything in it make more sense, taste amazing, and feel good. And what could be better than that? I wanted to mention some other podcasts besides uh, the ones I already mentioned, Tammy Hackbart's 100% Guilt-Free Self-Care and Julia Washington's Pop Culture Make Me Jealous. These are just some helpful resources I find personally for dealing with emotions and the challenges of daily living. And one of those is called On Being, which is hosted by Krista Tippett. And another one that's a favorite is called The Happiness Lab, and it's hosted by Dr. Lori Santos. And I've provided links in the blog post to those um, episodes. And I include a special note here at the end to say that disordered eating, and there's a link there, is a very real and potentially dangerous situation that you or a loved one could experience, which can be extremely difficult or even impossible to manage alone. It's often characterized by, but not limited to, severely restricting calorie intake, binging and purging, excessively exercising, body dysmorphia, and obsessing about food, which is an inability to control your thoughts about food. Further information and resources are available to help online or by contacting your preferred medical professional. And I bring this up, something that I did struggle with in my teen years, actually, quite a bit and some of my friends and other family members. And we hear less about it now, I feel like, than we used to. And I used to take that as a like, well, it's not happening so much anymore, but it is. And so this post was in, and blog uh, podcast was in no way meant to have that as the focus, but I, I feel like I would be irresponsible to not mention it as something. So if you or someone you love notices any of those kind of red flags to please reach out to get um, the help that's out there and that you may need. But mostly as we end now, um, if this post um, and blog podcast, <laughs> it was kind of a merging of the two, brought up any interesting thoughts or comments you'd like to share, I'd love to hear from you. And you can email me at myyogaaudio at gmail.com. And to let you all know, um, for yoga practice, on January uh, the 17th, which was Martin Luther King Jr. holiday, I went live on Instagram on the my.yoga.audio Instagram page. So there is a 60 minute free class there for you. Um, I've been, people have been asking me for years. It's been literally years now of the, of the pandemic to do that. And I finally gussied up the courage to, to go live and record one. So if you're looking for a class and you weren't able to join, for the actual live itself, 
go uh, go check out uh, on Instagram at my.yoga.audio. Give us a follow there and you can have access to that video. Reminder that there's also YouTube. So I'll see if I can upload it there. All right. In the meantime, friends, stay healthy, stay happy, stay well, reach out with questions and feedback. And thanks for tuning in because it's always a great time for your mind to be on the mat.